think you know? Do you know what fascism is? Fascism, you know what fascism is? America, yeah. Nazis are. Not where, no, sir. When fascism comes to America, it will, not, where, no, yeah. you know you know America, it will not be in brown and black shirts. It will not be oh. with jackboots. It will be Nike sneakers and smiley shirts. Smiley, smiley. The, the, the fascism. <laughs> Germany lost the Second World War. Fascism won it. All right, that was, of course, the late, great stand-up philosopher George Carlin. And this is Prof. CJ, your one-man revolution and guerrilla scholar warrior, obsessively tending the flickering candle of light in this new dark age. And this is, of course, the Dangerous History Podcast. This is episode 56 of the Dangerous History Podcast, Fun with Fascism. And I'm going to start by sharing some quotes from some fascists to try and get an idea of what these people are all about who call themselves fascists. Because fascist is one of those terms that gets bandied about very, very recklessly. Seems like a hell of a lot of people will just use the word fascist to label anyone they don't like or with whom they do not agree. And um, whether or not the person actually has any tinges of fascism in what they're saying or what they're believing. And it gets kind of annoying if you're one of those people like me who, who likes to try to make words mean something consistent so that language actually has a purpose. Um, people banding about words uh, incorrectly and, and very, very lightly is, is quite annoying. So it seems like all the time you hear Republicans calling Democrats fascists, you hear Democrats calling Republicans fascists. And of course, the, the problem is, uh, as far as I'm concerned, uh, that both those parties are, are basically fascistic. It doesn't help when they call each other that. It would be like the Bloods accusing the Crips of being a bunch of thugs and the Crips accusing the Bloods of being a bunch of thugs. It's technically true, but not terribly useful. So anyway, getting to some statements from some real genuine self-identifying fascists. Fascism believes neither in the possibility nor the utility of perpetual peace. War alone brings up to its highest tension all human energy and puts the stamp of nobility upon peoples who have the courage to meet it. It may be expected that this will be a century of authority, a century of the left, a century of fascism. For the 19th century was a century of individualism. It may be expected that this will be a century of collectivism and hence the century of the state. End quote. Now, there's a lot of important stuff in that quote I just read to you. Um, it, it reveals the militarism, the collectivism, the statism of the ideas of fascism. That statement came from the father of fascism, the guy who invented it in the modern political sense, Benito Mussolini, dictator of Italy from the early 1920s until he was overthrown and killed during World War II. And you might have noticed in that long quotation I read from Mussolini something very, very interesting when he says this will be a century of this, a century of that. One of the things he said was a century of the left. And that brings up an interesting point, which is this left-right you know, spectrum that everybody always wants to box things in with. Where does fascism really belong on that? And the, the conventional answer is, well, fascism is the far right, but... There's a lot of intelligent people, including myself and people far more intelligent than I, who are not quite so sure that that actually makes sense. Anyway, we'll come back to that a little bit later. But isn't that interesting that Benito Mussolini, who coined the term fascism in the modern political sense and was a self-identified fascist, basically was the founding father of fascism, identified fascism, at least initially, this is from fairly early on in his reign, 
At least at that point, he was identifying fascism as a doctrine of the political left. Mussolini himself was a former socialist, so very interesting stuff. Now another one from Benito Mussolini. Quote, fascism should more properly be called corporatism because it is the merger of state and corporate power. End quote. The merger of state and corporate power is fascism. That's interesting. Another one from Mussolini, quote, the fascist conception of the state is all-embracing. Outside of it, no human or spiritual values can exist, much less have value. Thus understood, fascism is totalitarian, and the fascist state, a synthesis and a unit inclusive of all values, interprets, develops, and potentiates the whole life of a people, end quote. Mussolini again, quote, the fascist state lays claim to rule in the economic field no less than in others. It makes its action felt throughout the length and breadth of the country by means of its corporate, social, and educational institutions, and all the political, economic, and spiritual forces of the nation organized in their respective associations circulate within the state, end quote. Mussolini again, quote, in view of the fact that private organization of production is a function of national concern, the organizer of the enterprise is responsible to the state for the direction given to production, end quote. And one last one from Benito Mussolini, quote, against individualism, the fascist conception is for the state. Liberalism denied the state in the interests of the particular individual. Fascism reaffirms the state as the true reality of the individual, end quote. And by the way, I will point out that in that last quote I read, when Benito Mussolini talks about liberalism, he means it in the traditional or classical sense, um, what might be considered the kind of laissez-faire, you know, Adam Smith... Um, Richard Cobden sort of liberalism, 19th century classical liberalism of free markets and limited government is what Benito Mussolini is complaining about. Not the liberalism of somebody like Franklin Roosevelt, the more you know modern version of liberalism, which is basically a kind of blend of social democratism with, uh, you could argue, at least some elements of fascism. Um, Mussolini actually was a big admirer of Franklin Delano Roosevelt's New Deal, and, and the admiration went both ways. FDR and a lot of his advisors were great admirers of Mussolini's programs in Italy. And before World War II and the U.S. and Italy eventually finding themselves on opposite sides of that war, the Roosevelt administration and the Mussolini regime were actually quite open and public in their mutual praise and admiration for each other. Now, fascism is one of the harder of the modern political isms to nail down as far as exactly what it is. It's one of the, the less systematic isms out there. And I'm tempted to, to take the line of, I think it was uh, Supreme Court Justice Stewart, if I remember right, who in a mid-60s uh, case involving obscenity, said something along the lines very famously of, I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. That was his definition of obscenity. I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. And I think fascism is kind of that way, although I still think we can throw enough of its characteristics together to come up with a pretty good picture. 
Um, fascism, though, is, is very different from one country to the next. Most people, when they think of fascism, the first thing they think of is the Nazi regime. But the Nazi regime was a particular variant of fascism and, in fact, was very different in a lot of ways from how fascism operated in most other places where it governed historically. Um, the, the fascist regime in Italy, while certainly it had some similarities, was not the same as Hitler's regime in Germany. Likewise, uh, Franco's fascist regime in Spain was different from them. And uh, other places where regimes that were fascist or kind of quasi-fascist arose um, were different within their different countries. So this is a tricky subject. Fascism, unlike, say, socialism, doesn't have a, a big corpus of intellectual work that you can go look at. You know, while you or I, for that matter, uh, may not be fans of the the writings of people like Karl Marx or, or Vladimir Lenin or Leon Trotsky, um, nonetheless, I mean, as, as, as evil and flawed as their ideas uh, may be, and, and I would say, in my opinion, are, at least like they were serious intellectuals, at least in their own, their own sort of way. Um, they, they did write these, uh, long essays and books and whatever, and did try and hash out what their particular ism, right? Socialism, communism, uh, what that was. And there were of course many other socialist and communist intellectuals who are less famous than the names I mentioned, who also contributed. Now, again, we might consider these ideas to be mostly pretty bad, but at least they're kind of laid out so that if you want to know what communism is about, it's a relatively simple task to go read a few key books or, or whatever and, and know, okay, that's what communism is. Whether you like it or don't like it, you at least can have a, a pretty fixed, agreeable definition of what it is. But fascism is a lot trickier because fascism didn't really have the same degree of, um, you know, intellectuals laying it out in a somewhat systematic fashion. Fascism almost strikes me as like an ism that was kind of cooked up on the fly, right? That was sort of an ad hoc ism slapped together, um, primarily over what people who, who came to, to follow the fascists uh, were against more than what they're for. Now, that doesn't mean they're not for anything, but it just means that that's more how the, the ideology evolved almost more organically rather than communism, where it was more like, you know, intellectuals sat down and, and tried to tried to figure it out. So what is fascism? Well, one one cliched conventional answer is that it's something along the lines of the opposite of communism, which brings up the whole conventional left versus right spectrum idea, which I think is severely flawed. In practice, I would argue that fascism and communism actually agree on a lot more than they disagree on. Again, especially in practice, even though maybe their rhetoric and their ideology is different. So that's where there's more practical difference, I would say, is in, in their words than in their actions. And again, as evidence of this, Mussolini himself was a former socialist who, early on at least, frequently referred to fascism as an ideology of the left. Now, if you don't know the history of where the left versus right terminology first came from, it came out of the French Revolution, uh, what happened was during the, the early phases of the French Revolution, the defenders of the monarchy and of the authority of the Catholic Church in France, in other words, the defenders of the, the old regime, sat 
on the right side of the assembly and the most radicals, uh, the most radical members of the assembly, the Jacobins, right, uh, who wanted to abolish the monarchy altogether, um, really emasculate the the authority of the Catholic Church in France, if not try to do away with it altogether, um, establish a republic, you know, have... uh, liberty, equality, and fraternity, all that stuff, they were on the left, and then um, the the members of the assembly who were somewhere in between sat somewhere in between. So that was where you got left and right. Left was the Jacobins in the French Revolution, right was the monarchists. And that jargon of left versus right has endured ever since in political discourse, at least in the West, and and for all I know, um, throughout much of the modern world. And it's extremely limiting because it's it's a two-dimensional spectrum. It's the idea that there are kind of two opposite ends of political opinion and then everything else must fall somewhere on a gradation between those two opposite extremes. And that that to me is just an insanely ridiculous and oversimplification of the complexity of political ideas that doesn't do justice to anybody. I mean, the notion that you've got, you know, on the far left, you've got Joseph Stalin and on the far right, you've got Adolf Hitler. How the hell are those two regimes the opposite of each other? And furthermore, on a spectrum where on one extreme is Stalin and on the other extreme is Hitler, where the hell does freedom fit in? Doesn't seem like freedom fits anywhere on that spectrum, does it? So this whole notion of communism and Nazism being opposites of each other that you so often encounter in the mainstream is just, to me, absolutely absurd. I'm one of those who's of the opinion that really what they are, uh, communism and and fascism or Nazism, they're rivals for the same sort of territory, intellectually speaking, and then, you know, when they're controlling a state, physically speaking. They're, They're rivals for the same type of people. I would argue they're just two different variations or two different flavors of extreme collectivism, extreme statism. Again, I'll, I'll use the, um, the gang analogy, right? I mean, the, the Bloods and the Crips will um, historically sometimes fight viciously against each other for control of a particular neighborhood or a particular piece of turf, right? But does that mean that the Bloods and the Crips actually stand for opposite principles intellectually? Or are they, in fact, much more similar to each other than either would be compared to, oh, I don't know, some kind of like a, a charitable organization, right? I mean, if you say the Bloods are the opposite of the Crips and there's, you know, every every other organization is just somewhere in that spectrum in between them, that leaves no room for like, I don't know, the United Way or somebody like that who, who does what's generally considered humanitarian things. So my argument is that the real opposite of both fascism and communism is individualism is liberty is you know whatever you want to call it but something that means the individual not under the boot of the state and that you know if there's a boot on your neck whether it's a left boot or a right boot is not really the important part and having a a right boot on your neck and having a left boot on your neck are not from the experience from from the perspective of the person experiencing the boot the difference of whether it's a right boot or a left boot is not the important part The important part is there's a boot on you, and the opposite of having a boot on you is not having the other boot on you, it's having no boot on you. So to me, the reason you find communism and fascism so brutally fighting each other is not because they're 
opposite in terms of their principles, but because in fact they're so similar. In other words, they're rivals for the same turf, just like the Bloods and Crips or just like two competing mafia families. They're not the opposite of each other. The reason they compete so harshly with each other is because of how similar they are. So if it's not... Um, if it's not defined as the opposite of communism, how is fascism defined, or how can it be defined, or how should it be defined? Well, I think a good place to start is with the writer John T. Flynn in his 1944 book, As We Go Marching. As We Go Marching was a very ballsy book to write and publish in 1944 when World War II was still going on and Team America was deep in it. As We Go Marching sought to analyze the essential elements of fascism, and then furthermore, in it, Flynn went on to say that the way the war is going, basically the United States is going to end up at the end of the war almost as fascistic as the countries it was fighting. John T. Flynn in As We Go Marching refers to what he calls the essential ingredients of fascism. First is that you have a government that is large, centralized, and powerful, and that spends huge sums of money on welfare state-type programs in large measure, measure financed by large budget deficits. The second essential ingredient of fascism, according to Flynn, is you have an economy that appears to have kind of the formal structure of a capitalist economy. In other words, there's at least nominally private property and um, private enterprises, you know, private corporations. However, the state, the government, interferes significantly and constantly with things as important to the functioning of a market economy as prices, wages, rents, interest rates, and so on. And um, so the degree to which the government intervenes in this economy is the degree to which the economy is not truly free market. And even though there's nominal private ownership of a lot of the means of production, the fact of the matter is that you end up with a planned economy in practice. Um, so, and, and this is this is my elaboration, not not Flynn's take on it, but there's a concept when you're studying imperialism, which is one of the main things I studied in graduate school. When you're studying imperialism, like, you know, 19th, early 20th century European overseas imperialism in, in Africa and, and Asia and so on. They talk about formal imperialism versus informal imperialism. And in that context, formal imperialism means like when a country just flat out blatantly goes into another country, takes it over, legally, quote unquote, says this is part of my empire, uh, part of my jurisdiction, you know, I'm raising my flag over this territory, etc. That's formal imperialism. That's what most people think of when they think of imperialism, I think. So, for example, when the British Empire took over South Africa, um, that's formal imperialism, right? When the French took over Algeria, that was formal imperialism. But then there's informal imperialism, which is sometimes harder to spot. But um, in, in at least some places is um, more important to understanding what's going on than, than formal imperialism. Informal imperialism is when a more powerful, you know, imperial country exercises a significant amount of influence on another country, which nominally, legally speaking, is theoretically independent, is, is theoretically a sovereign independent country, not legally supposed to be a part of that larger, more powerful country's empire. But that larger, more powerful country exercises an enormous amount of influence and leverage over 
the smaller country to the point where the smaller country is de facto uh, being told what to do, at least about certain uh, significant matters by the uh, more powerful country. So um, the British, the way that they ran uh, Egypt in the late 19th, early 20th century is probably about the most extreme example of informal imperialism. The, the British did not officially annex Egypt into their empire, but they occupied it militarily for something along the lines of 70 years. And they had a British advisor um, who basically would tell the, the Egyptian ruler what to do on most important matters. But it was never formally called a part of the British Empire. Well, what's my point with bringing up formal versus informal imperialism? Well, um, I think when you're looking at state control of an economy, there is a formal state-planned economy and informal state-planned economy is how I would describe it. And a formal state-planned economy is like communism in the Soviet Union, where the state just blatantly... Uh, no bones about it, just takes over the important means of production and so on and just, you know, micromanages and, and controls all aspects of the economy um, from the, I forget what it was called, the, the particular office of the Politburo in Moscow that controlled the economy of the entire Soviet Union. And so in, in a place like the Soviet Union, there, there's no, there's not even the appearance of private enterprise and private property, at least when it comes to, you know, the means of production. In fascism, I would say it's it's informal state planning of the economy. The state does not, usually in a fascist regime, the state does not nationalize as much. They might nationalize a few things, but in general, they don't nationalize nearly as much uh, in terms of industries and so on as, as a communist regime would. They're nominally privately owned and so on. But nonetheless, in a fascist regime, the state will seize control of, you know, key parts of the economy that are really like the nerve centers of a market economy in a lot of ways and exercise such control over them that in practice, they're basically planning the economy. So it's similar. Uh, the way a fascist regime deals with its nation's economy is similar to how um, an informal imperial country dominates and, and controls um, a dependency that's not a part of its formal empire, the way, for example, the British did in Egypt um, for all those years. Now, it's the same difference in practice to the people on the ground, is my point, right? Uh, if you were an Egyptian during the period of British occupation, in practical terms, it didn't matter what, what the flags and the, the legalities and, and so on said and the treaty said. In practical for practical purposes, you were just as much a part of the British Empire as somebody in India that was, you know, part of the formal empire. So that, that's how fascism takes over an economy, not by direct nationalization a la communism, but by having the state just intervene in some of the most important parts of the functions of the economy, like prices, interest rates, etc. So, okay, continuing on with Flynn's ingredients of fascism. That's a bit of a digression, but I, I thought it would help to illustrate my point. Continuing on with Flynn's ingredients of fascism, we got number one, uh, a big centralized government spends a lot of money on welfare state programs, a lot of it financed by deficits. Two, formal appearance of a, of a free market economy, but the state exercises tremendous control over many important aspects to the point that it's basically a planned, planned economy in practice. Okay, so moving on to the next thing. Number three, militarism. Militarism as like a permanent policy. 
um, pervading both society and the economy too. A good part of the economy uh, geared towards you know armaments and all that as a, like a permanent jobs program. Is any of this starting to sound familiar to you, especially those of you who live, I don't know, um, north of Mexico but south of Canada? Um, well, maybe this next one will sound a little familiar to you as well, and that's imperialism, which obviously goes hand in hand um, and is an outgrowth of the militarism. And you see this with Mussolini, you know, getting active uh, in Africa, you know, attacking Ethiopia, and then, of course, the Nazis attacking, like, most of Western Europe and um, and Russia, too, for that matter, right? So militarism and imperialism, they go hand in hand. Now, Flynn referred to those first four items that I've gone through so far as, uh, in his terms, uh, the prologue to fascism, I think is what he called it. And then there's one more that marks the turning point where you go from what Flynn called the prologue to fascism. I think he also referred to the number one through four as economic fascism as well. And then the last step when you go to full-blown fascism is number five, a totalitarian state with a strong dictator at its head. Now, interesting question for those of you who are Americans, or for that matter, those of you listening anywhere, um, if, you, if you're you know, almost anywhere in the world, you're living under something that's probably comparable to this, though maybe not to the same degree. But think about this. Does any of this characterize the United States government in terms of how it operates? Large central government spends big money on welfare state programs financed by deficits, um, formerly a capitalist economy, but with a large amount of government interference with key focal points of the economy to the point where it's basically economic planning and practice, militarism and imperialism. You be the judge. You be the judge. Now, I would not argue that at this point in time, the United States is to the point of number five, a totalitarian state with a strong dictator at its head. But I think you can make a very strong case that uh, we got number one through four down pretty good. By the way, Flynn, 71 years ago, writing this book, As We Go Marching, uh, wrote this about fascism potentially coming to the USA. Quote, Fascism will come at the hands of perfectly authentic Americans, as violently against Hitler and Mussolini as the next one, but who are convinced that the present economic system is washed up and that the present political system in America has outlived its usefulness, and who wish to commit this country to the rule of the bureaucratic state, interfering in the affairs of the states and cities, taking part in the management of industry and finance and agriculture, assuming the role of great national banker and investor, borrowing billions every year and spending them on all sorts of projects through which such a government can paralyze opposition and command public support, marshalling great armies and navies at crushing costs to support the industry of war and preparation for war, which will become our greatest industry. And adding to all this, the most romantic adventures in global planning, regeneration, and domination, all to be done under the authority of a powerfully centralized government in which the executive will hold in effect all the powers with Congress reduced to the role of a debating society. That is your fascist, end quote. So maybe we're starting to get it, uh, starting to whittle it down more and get a little bit more of a picture of exactly what fascism is as a system, as a program. Very strong centralized government uh, where the government intrudes to um, 
in ideal form, all aspects of life in practice, not always. I mean, if you look at how fascism operated in Italy or in Spain, um, it, it never got quite as totalitarian in those places as it did in Nazi Germany. And I don't think it was for lack of trying, at, le- at least on the part of Mussolini. Mussolini clearly, I think, wanted to be a totalitarian. Um, I think he just never had the logistical power in Italy. I think Italy just was never, never quite um, conquered by extreme nationalist ideology the way that Germany was. I think in, in fascist Italy, there still remained enough of uh, the population who were just not quite 110% on board. But at least in theory, um, fascism believes that the state should be at least involved in a controlling way in every aspect of people's lives. Um, one idea that I haven't got into in a huge way yet so far is very common in fascism, um, often considered a, one of the defining elements of it, is a very strong nationalism that's simultaneously modern and yet is like looking back on some sort of idealized past. In, in Germany, in Nazi Germany, the notion was the Volk. V-O-L-K, which, which um, you know, in German, the V's are usually pronounced as the way we pronounce F's. So the Volk, right? And this is a like an organic idea of a nation that sort of blends the concepts of race and culture and history and language and all these things together. And the idea is that um, it's taking the organic history of this Volk, this nation, this people, and then um, making it formal and backing it up with the power of the modern state to adapt it to the modern world. And of course, this is, this is an idea that oftentimes leads to all sorts of violence and oppression of any group that's considered not part of the Volk for one reason or another, whether for ethnicity or for you know, non-approved religious beliefs or whatever, for, for um, having the wrong ideology, for not believing in the Volk enough, that sort of thing. So in fascism, um, you've got some sort of a police state, a high degree of surveillance, a high degree of repression of any group considered an enemy of the regime, and so on. You also have a cult of the leader. That's another thing. Now, you can have this also in communism as well, so I wouldn't say this is something that is unique to fascism by any means, but it's um, pretty much, I think universal with with genuine fascist regimes is some degree of a cult of the leader and you can see this in all the pageantry um all of the the hoopla you know go watch something like uh the the nazi german film triumph of the will which is still considered to this day like a masterpiece of filmmaking even though obviously its message its message is one that not many people would publicly endorse today but um you know, I, I watched when I was an undergraduate, I took a class on modern German history and we watched um, many um, segments of Triumph of the Will. And it was just fascinating, all the pageantry and the hoopla and, you know, using parades and speeches and all these things as as propaganda. And man, when you really start to take that red pill and you really start to, to look around critically, if you're in a country like the United States in that your country has a lot of nationalist pageantry... Man, when you start to take that red pill, you start to see triumph of the will going on all around you at, you know, patriotic holiday parades and whatnot. Now, I would imagine that that many other countries today have their version of that as well. But uh, at the center of it all, of course, is is always the charismatic demagogic leader um, is, 
depicted as a strong man, a dynamic leader, a man of action. You know, fascism is is all about the executive. Um, the legislative parts of the government are not terribly important. You know, whatever laws are written or not not written in a fascist regime is, is of is of you know not even secondary importance. What matters is the executive and what he's doing. And you can even see this in the terminology, right? Um, Mussolini was referred to as Il Duce, which from Italian translates simply as the leader. And of course, much more commonly known, Hitler was referred to as Der Führer, which German also for the leader. So it's very much a cult of personality of the leader. Now, I want to return to economics momentarily. Um, already, you know, discussed a lot of the economic features of a typical fascist regime, but um, I want to Describe it in a little bit different way, though. Um, we've already mentioned, you know, fascism almost always has a, a, a pretty significant welfare state and um, high, high degree of state intervention into the economy in key ways. One way to look at fascism as an economic program is to see it as an updated version of old school mercantilism. Mercantilism is this idea that came out of Europe, I think, around the 17th century. And it was this idea which the European empires then ran on for the next century or two um, until at least some of them adopted free trade. But um, mercantilism is the idea that the state and large uh, business, you know, corporate interests should uh, get together to rig the economy for the mutual benefit of the state and the large corporations. So mercantilism is very much an anti-free market ideology. The idea is through control of things like taxes and tariffs and trade regulations and um, all these sorts of things, the state can help itself out and help out politically favored business interests, which always tend to be the, the largest ones that give the most to the politicians. And so at the time of the American Revolution, the British Empire was being run along mercantilist lines. Um, and then after the American Revolution, uh, Alexander Hamilton largely steered the United States down a mercantilist path for much of its early history. And there's a lot of similarities um, between mercantilism and, um, and economic aspects of fascism, including the militarism, by the way. It's, it's not a coincidence that, for the most part, a lot of the most mercantilist uh, politicians in early American history, including Hamilton himself, were some of the most um, hawkish when it came to war and territorial expansion and conquest. And mercantilists in America uh, and in Britain, the two countries that I've, I've studied the most in this regard, often explicitly linked their economic ideas and goals with their goals in terms of imperialism and expansion. So anyway, a lot of similarities uh, between mercantilism and the economic aspects of fascism. Fascism, I think, adds in a few innovations, though, that came after kind of classical mercantilism. Fascism blends in a little bit of social democracy ideas in the form of the welfare state. And also, classical mercantilism was just the government and big business getting together. In fascism, there's usually some form of bringing in labor, at least like tame labor unions that have you know, been domesticated by the state and brought into the system, bringing labor on board as like a junior partner uh, with the state and big business in this sort of tripartite uh, agreement to cartelize and rig the system for their mutual benefit. So you got big government, big business, and big labor um, all getting together in, in economic fascism. 
let me read you an excerpt from the National Socialist German Workers' Party platform. Quote, We ask that government undertake the obligation, above all, of providing citizens with adequate opportunity for employment and earning a living. The activities of the individual must not be allowed to clash with the interests of the community, but must take place within the confines and be for the good of all. Therefore, we demand an end to the power of financial interest. We demand profit sharing in big business. We demand a broad extension of care for the aged in order to make possible to every capable and industrious citizen the attainment of higher education and thus the achievement of a post of leadership, the government must provide an all-around enlargement of our system of public education. We demand the education at government expense of gifted children of poor parents. The government must undertake the improvement of public health by protecting mother and child, by prohibiting child labor, by the greatest possible support for all groups concerned with the physical education of youth. We combat the materialistic spirit within and without us and are convinced that a permanent recovery of our people can only proceed from within on the foundation of the common good before the individual good, end quote. And again, that's excerpted from the Nazi Party or National Socialist German Workers' Party's platform. Interesting thought experiment. How many American politicians do you think um, share those aspects? And again, I'm not, I'm not saying that they all share uh, the Nazis, you know, extreme militarism and anti-Semitism and all that. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. I'm saying, are there similarities in the economic and social ideas of many American politicians past and present to those same realms in terms of the Nazi party or other fascist parties. Interesting food for thought. Good book. Um, a guy I'm not normally a fan of, I don't think anything else he wrote, is um, Liberal Fascism by Jonah Goldberg. So you might want to check that out. I'll put that and a whole bunch of other good books and stuff related to what I'm talking about in the show notes for today on the website profcj.org. There's been a lot of work comparing um, American kind of progressive politicians throughout the 20th century to fascists in a lot of ways, especially in their economic policies. One of the books I'll put in the show notes is a book called Three New Deals, which is all about that. Again, Jonah Goldberg's uh, liberal fascism gets into a lot of the links between fascists and American progressives in terms of their ideas and attitudes. Now, in regards to the early American progressives, though, um, I just want to tell a quick story here about something where sometimes somebody will say something that you don't get at the time that you, you just dismiss or think is ridiculous at the time. And that many years later, when you've accumulated more knowledge and wisdom, you realize that they were absolutely right. And um, you just were, you know, at the time too lost in blue pill land to quite see what it, what it really was. And the story relates to Teddy Roosevelt, the um, out of the turn of the century American progressives, the one that I think is the most clearly a, a proto-fascist, you know, even though the term fascist hadn't been invented yet, clearly had ideas that are almost identical to those of somebody like Mussolini. That's back when I was a senior um, in my undergraduate work and I was taking a senior seminar course, a history course, that was um, on like the, the Gilded Age and Progressive Era. So like the last decade or two of the um, 19th century and maybe the first, I don't know, decade or so of the, of the 20th century. So Gilded Age and Progressive Era. 
and it was a cool class, and I learned a lot. And in this class, there was this one young lady um, who was, you know, a, a bright, good student. Um, I can't remember if she was a history major or a history minor, one or the other. I didn't know her super well, but I, I kind of knew her. We were we were in a few classes together over the years as history majors. And um, in, in this seminar, we all did a, a big term. We each did a big term paper project for ourselves, and then did a you know, I forget, 15-minute or whatever presentation to the class um, summarizing our term paper and, and what we had researched and, and so on and what our thesis was in our term paper and whatever. And so this young lady who, and I say young lady now because, of course, I'm imagining, uh, you know, a 19-year-old. Of course, at the time, I was the same age, right? But uh, to me now, looking back, young lady. Um, anyway, this young lady is kind of kind of hippie sort of person. I didn't know her real well, so honestly, I don't know what the hell her political opinions were. For all for all I know, she might have been a libertarian, but I, I got the impression though that she was kind of a typical lefty. But anyway, her her thesis of her paper was something to the effect that Teddy Roosevelt's ideas were very similar to fascism. I think she even had a provocative title like Teddy Roosevelt, a fascist president or something like that. Now, here's the thing. At the time, at the time, I was still in kind of conservatarian limbo, right? I still had kind of a nationalist streak in me. Um, I was, you know, seeing the light of day on the war on drugs and and uh, was was starting to have some serious doubts about American foreign policy, but I was still kind of in that conservatarian zone where you still have some nationalism and you still try to think happy thoughts about the so-called great presidents and so on. And, and you have the, you know, the typical minarchist idea of, well, if only we could just get back to the way things used to be in fill in the blank, whatever year, everything would be fine. Um, so when this, this uh, young young lady made her arguments that Teddy Roosevelt was in his ideologies and policies kind of a proto-fascist. I confirmation biased it out. I you know just was like, wow, that's so ridiculous and outlandish and blah blah blah, and and didn't even really pay attention to much of the rest of what she had to say. And it was only years later. And and, and to be fair, at that time, I just didn't know that much about Teddy Roosevelt, other than the all the mythology and and hoopla about him being a great president and doing all these wonderful things and so on. So you know th- that's that's my only defense aside from from uh, you know where I was at ideologically and 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 the human mind. Uh, the human mind's tendency towards confirmation bias. Those, those are those are my defenses. But my main defense is honestly, I didn't know enough about Teddy Roosevelt and about what early American progressivism was really all about to understand that um, that she was right. If you look at the ideas of Teddy Roosevelt, what what do you have? Well, you've got extreme nationalism, check. Militarism, check. Imperialism, double check. Corporatism, the desire for government and big business to team up uh, with with labor as a junior partner and kind of cartelize the economy and, and, and plan it in that way. Check. Desire for welfare state programs. Check. And a um, significant tendency to favor the executive branch and a very active executive as the way government should be run absolutely check. Now, did Teddy Roosevelt ever try and institute a full-blown police state or, you know, one-party rule or anything like that? Clearly no, 
Clearly no. But was he some sort of a proto-fascist? I think this uh, hippie girl in my class was wiser than I was at that time. And honestly, I can't remember her name. If, if I could, I might even be inclined to uh, publicly apologize to her, even though I didn't say anything bad to her about her paper. I didn't, I didn't tell her it was stupid or anything. Like I just kind of didn't listen to it as much, uh, her presentation, as much as I should have in hindsight. Because now, looking back, I'm like, well, you know what? Um, she was more right on that question than I was at that time. And just goes to show you, I, I think, illustrates that um, it's important to keep an open mind because the natural tendency of human brains, no matter how smart you are, is to shut out things that severely contradict your preperceptions and um, that you have to consciously try to overcome that and prevent it from shutting you out to information that might actually be better than um, what you're believing at the time. So anyway, I, I think that's, an, looking back, I find that an, kind of an amusing story and, and I hope you can you can see kind of the lesson there as well. And if you'd like to see more on the connections um, between American so-called progressives in the early 20th century and fascist um, similarities in terms of a lot of their ideas, um, aside from, from reading liberal fascism, um, you can also check out, if you have not already, the episodes I did way back towards the beginning of the podcast. So I'm sure the the sound quality isn't as good and whatever, and I probably sound like an idiot, but um, episodes 12 and 13, especially 12, I had a lot of quotes from progressive politicians illustrating their ideology, and um, not just politicians, but intellectuals as well. And uh, you can you can then think about the things that I've said about fascism here, and, and are there any similarities? And episode 13 was Artifacts of American Progressivism, in which I discussed um, some things tangible and intangible that are still with us today that many people think of as just being like eternal American things, everything from the Pledge of Allegiance to the Lincoln Memorial and so on, and talk about their origins in the progressive era and how these things um, are largely influenced by progressive ideologies. And again, there's some links to fascism, both in terms of uh, style and content. Now, fascism, of course, was not confined to the 20s, 30s, and World War II, but fascism is still around with us today. And I don't just mean in the milder form of things like Republicans and Democrats, but even in the more harsh, you know, closer to the original fascist forms. Fascism survived World War II, and as George Carlin said uh, at the beginning of the episode, in some ways you could argue fascism won World War II as an idea system because even the United States had to adopt a lot of the features of fascism in the process of fighting the war. Calls to mind the old line from Friedrich Nietzsche, battle not with monsters, lest you become one. But you have fascism, either in name or not in name, uh, in a bunch of places for, for many years after World War II. Um, Francisco Franco's fascist regime in Spain uh, which took over in Spain in the 1930s as a result of the Spanish Civil War, endured for decades after World War II ended because Franco was wise enough to stay neutral and not get directly involved in the war, and therefore he was not attacked by the Allies the way Italy and Germany were. Franco's regime ends up being a, an ally of NATO in the Cold War. I can't remember if Spain officially joined NATO at that time or not, but if they weren't officially part of NATO, they were at least, you know, uh, helping out with NATO. And uh, he he 
his regime lasted until his death in the 70s, and then Spain started to come back to being somewhat democratic. Um, there was a fascist regime, I believe, if I remember right, for some years in Portugal as well, uh, and, and more or less a fascist regime for, for some years in Greece uh, in, in the post-war period. And then, of course, you had lots of regimes during the Cold War that were fascist in all but name, uh, many of which the United States and its allies were huge supporters of. So you could argue, for example, in a lot of ways, the South Vietnamese government that the U.S. supported for so long was kind of fascistic in a lot of ways. Um, the regimes the U.S. supported during the Cold War in places like the Philippines and Indonesia had a lot of the characteristics of fascism. The South Korean regime was very fascistic for a long time um, wasn't until I think the late 80s that South Korea started to become democratic. It was quite an authoritarian police state uh, before that. Of course, the United States for many years helped out Saddam Hussein's government in Iraq before it suddenly decided to be his enemy in the early 90s. And um, his his Ba'ath Party has lots of fascistic elements and I think even even claims a, you know, kind of a kinship to fascism in a lot of ways. And a lot of the non-communist or anti-communist authoritarian regimes that the United States sponsored in many other trouble spots around the world, including a lot of the Latin American regimes that were sponsored by the U.S., were more or less fascist, even though they, they wouldn't have used that term. You can even make the argument that Chiang Kai-shek's regime, the nationalist in China that the United States supported against the communists but ultimately lost, um, was fascistic as well. So anyway, fascism had a long, long existence after World War II and, and in many ways, you could argue, is still present in many countries around the world in more or less um, harsh and obvious forms. And in fact, fascism on the, is on the rise in some places. There's this kind of uh, xenophobic anti-immigrant right-wingism that's popping up in European politics lately that can be argued as somewhat fascistic. And again, I'm using the right-left language, even though I just earlier denounced it as, as problematic, but still... I kind of use it occasionally just because it's what's there and it's what people understand. But um, there's uh, some political parties in Greece, I know, that are almost completely blatantly fascist. And some of the nationalist groups in Ukraine are fascist. And some people would argue, um, and I think they at least have somewhat of a point, that the Likud government in Israel has a lot of the hallmarks of fascism as well. So anyway, um, fascism, though... I don't think there's any regime in power that I can think of right now that officially, formally calls itself fascist. I think you can make a strong case that the ideas and programs and methodologies of fascism are alive and well in the modern world right on through to the present. Well, anyway, I hope I've given you um, some some stuff to think about and not wasted your time here. This has been kind of a freewheeling sort of an episode. It was not a narrative of the history of fascist regimes. That was not my intention here. My intention here was to just kind of try and sketch out what fascism really is. And I hope I've done that or at least given you some stuff to think about. And as I always do, I very much appreciate your time and attention. I'm, I'm very flattered uh, at the number of people who actually want to listen to what I have to say and, and who have, you know, positive feedback and all that stuff. Uh, it's, it's just very heartening, keeps me going, makes me want to keep uh, drudging through the day job so that I can, I can get a little time in each day trying to put together material for an episode and then when I can get a little bit of, uh, of, of peace and quiet in my house, um, throw down an episode. So I hope that this seat of the pants 
exploration of what fascism is really about has been enlightening and entertaining for you. As always, if you have any comments about this episode, please feel free to leave them in the comment section for this episode at my website, which again is profcj.org. Also, you can email me questions and comments at the email address profcj at profcj.org. You can connect with the show on Facebook and Twitter. I'm kind of more of a Twitterer uh, just by personality than a Facebooker. So anyway, I, I throw random stuff on there sometimes and I check Twitter more often and, and I do more with Twitter. I just like it better for, for various reasons. But I do have a, I do have a Facebook page for the show. Uh, you can like it. Hey, please do. If you like the show, I'd appreciate it. And I do post stuff there. Um, not, not as often as Twitter, but I do post stuff there, you know, reasonably regularly. And on both Facebook and Twitter, it lets you know as soon as I've released a new episode of the podcast. So um, that's another good reason to um, connect with the show on whatever is your preference, Facebook or Twitter. You can also subscribe to the show on podcast venues such as iTunes and Stitcher. And please also consider supporting the show if you haven't already, or if you have and you want to support the show more, um, that's cool too. And I, and I very much appreciate everybody who's helped out the show in any way, uh, financially or just through spreading the word. It, it means a lot to me. And, you know, the more the show continues to grow, uh, the more I'm able to keep putting more into it and, and, and upgrade it over time and so on. So again, one basic way to, to help support the show is simply to spread the word about it in any way you can to anyone you think might like it. You can also, um, if you want to help out the show, leave a review or a rating in iTunes or Stitcher or places like that um, to encourage other people to try listening to the show. And if you want to help the show out financially, I sure would appreciate it. You can donate directly, profcj.org slash donate. You can donate by PayPal. Um, you can do a one-time or set up recurring donations. You can also donate Bitcoin to me. I've got a Bitcoin address on the donate page of the website as well. Send me some Bitcoin if you're so inclined. And you can also help the show out financially by purchasing stuff from Amazon by first going through my affiliate links on the website. So, Thank you for listening to another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast. This has been Prof. CJ helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future. And now I'm going to leave you with a clip from South Park. Kyle, let me explain something to you. Oh, God, here we go. You see, Kyle, we live in a liberal, democratic society, and Democrats make sexual harassment laws. These laws tell us what we can and can't say in the workplace, and what we can and can't do in the workplace. Isn't that fascism? No, because we don't call it fascism. Do you understand? Do you? <laughs> <laughs>